Incoming transmission. The Klingon word of the day is quip. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So, this is a huge victory for the good guys. Scotty, beat me up. Resistance is futile. They're long and prosperous. And welcome to the Computer Resume Podcast, the show covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for fans new and old. I'm your host, writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Artist extraordinaire, Star Trek fan superior, fashion sense mediocre, Greenville, South Carolina's own, it's Dwayne Ballinger! Yay! Dwayne Ballinger! (laughs) How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, dude? I'm good. I'm good. We, uh... Just to dive in for folks, we reconnected at uh, Free Comic Book Day. I guess yeah. it was, oh gosh, oh, was it this year or was it well, last? No, it was earlier what I this was year. wondering earlier, I was like, <laughs> was that? I think it was. I think it was. It? Yeah, so it would have been the first week of May. This is yeah. now, we're middle of September. But uh, yeah, man. Uh, so, and that's when I look, cause I've known you for off and on, I think because we're kind of in the same circles here in Greenville, yes. comic books, mm-hmm. artwork, conventions, that sort of thing. Um, but I don't think we've ever really sat down and talked and sort of, you know, compared our uh, nerdy brain pans as it right. were. Yeah. And it was, it was this time that I found that you are, a big star trek fan yes oh i love it nice it's huge what was but you're also a big artist so let me ask you what came first for you art or star trek oh art definitely really first yeah when when did you start arting i I don't even remember like i'm sure i was three i i know that i saw when i was cleaning out my grandparents house um I found some old drawings that were on uh, ruled notebook paper that I'd done. I must have been two, three, I guess. Wow, yeah. And one of them said, I guess my my grandma or somebody had asked me what it was, and I told them that it was a space dwarf. So here's this freaky, weird, you know, whatever character picture. Yeah. And then some adult has written space dwarf next <laughs> next to it oh that's adorable i yeah, love so it the space was there too i guess you know nice. so. yeah absorbed it through osmosis perhaps right yeah <laughs> that's fun it sound it sounds like a character out of like Spelljammer from uh from oh D&D. it does yeah like like you like you were kind of breaking ground there before wizards was yeah <laughs> So do you have, uh, do you have an earliest Star Trek memory? Like how, how did you, how did you have the epiphany? Oh, Star Trek. Was there, did somebody introduce it to you? Do you remember a, a particular episode or something like that? Um, how did I come about Star Trek? I'm not entirely sure. Was it always in the background of, uh, yeah, I think growing it was kind of, I, I do remember my mom and my uh, stepdad 
would watch it on um i guess it was being rerun somewhere mm-hmm. in the maybe the late 70s mid to late 70s okay yeah and i remember yeah. they would watch it and i i, I remember i do remember vividly like um the episode where one of the red shirts got turned into those croutons <laughs> and then they like crumbled the crouton yeah and that yeah. freaked me out. that freaked me out pretty good oh yeah so yeah that's that's an early memory of, of trek there now, that's fascinating there's a couple of there's a couple of instances where um you know uh, uh recently i watched um the 40th anniversary of wrath of Khan. And I watched it with a couple of, uh, with my co-hosts from cinema shock available now, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, and one of my co-hosts, Justin confessed to me, he goes, you know, uh, when I was growing up, the scene where Khan puts the worms in the ears of, of that, of that captain and check off, he goes, it gave me nightmares. And it, it really freaked me out as a kid. I was like, that's interesting. I mean, cause you just, you just reminded me that I saw that in the theater. I don't know who took me, Wow! but I do remember that night I was trying to go to sleep with my hands your over hands my over ears, ears, but nice. it made me so sweaty that I'm sure that I wasn't able to. Yeah. But I was like, no way is that getting in my ear? You know, oh, I knew it was funny. coming. It was like, yeah, it's, well, yeah, some of those things you see them and they stick around. They stick with you like long into adulthood. Yes. Yep. <laughs> but it's interesting true. because and I've pointed this out on a couple of episodes of Enterprise specifically, some of these episodes are just a hair away from being horror movies. And they they did that like right off the bat with yeah. um Fight or Flight where Hoshi walks into this uh i believe it was a klingon ship and then they round the corner and there's just dead bodies hanging from the ceiling yes. mm-hmm. and it was just like oh man and then even uh much later the episode uh dead stop where um the enterprise has found this fully automated repair station oh that was brilliant and it's super clean inside and, you know, high tech and, you know, everything's automated, voice activated, the whole thing. And they're like, wow, this is, it's one of those, it's too good to be true. Yeah. And then it's revealed that the price for repairs is it takes one of your crew members. Right. And the whole ship is running off of the brain power of captured crew members of yes. various species and various ships. And, like, and that you know that episode left me with um, because a lot of the the uh, technology that was introduced on that station mm-hmm. is stuff that you'd see in the next generation. Oh yeah, Voyager. You know, yeah, the idea of like they, replicators and voice yeah. activated things. Oh yes. yeah, for like sure. At what point did they go back? You know, yeah. or how did that work? Yeah, exactly. So, so what so you've been you've been a Star Trek fan for a long long time. What was your first impression of Enterprise because this was very much uh it, even amongst the TNG era shows this is very much an outlier. It's very it's very different. The, at the end of the TNG era the, they decided to do a prequel. So what were your right. first thoughts, your your first feelings, your first impressions of Enterprise? Let me just let me preface before I answer that question by saying that, like, I will watch anything Star Trek. 
I have said that they could like do something where they dress turds in Starfleet uniforms and I will check it out. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, um, yeah, starting out, I, I watched, I was there every single, you know, time there was a new enterprise on and, um, my first impression was kind of like, oh, this is a planet of the week kind of thing. Yeah. I kind of got that vibe. And um, I was not super pumped about the song at first. <laughs> you, wait, you you mean you don't have faith of the heart? I mean, I do now. <laughs> I do now. Don't get me wrong, man. Like I, that song really grew on. Because um bit of a bit of an earworm. It for, is an earworm from SETI Alpha Five. It is an earworm. And when you when you take the opening mm-hmm. and you see some of the historical footage that it sh- that it shows, mm-hmm. it's a heavy song, man. Yeah. That's a heavy, deep, like you know, mankind's trip to the stars kind of deep thing. Oh yeah. And Every- I'm into that. Everything from you know seeing the you know footage of old maps and the HMS Enterprise yeah. to the Enterprise hot air balloon, which a lot of people forget there was <laughs> yeah. a hot air balloon called Enterprise, right? Uh, to the early stages of the uh, of the Apollo program, and of course the uh, the space shuttle Enterprise, yeah. and of mm-hmm. course leading up to the uh, International Space Station, and of course the NX one. It was I I, I prefer season one and two faith of the heart as opposed to season before the beat was added yes before before the remix yeah i i I agree with that i i I mean i ain't mad at it and i i guess i kind of get it like they wanted to sort of jazz it up a little bit or something sure sure. yeah i'm like (laughs) sorry the um i i like the first and second episode i mean season song better yeah yeah and i think and i've you know i've talked about this uh, a couple of times but i feel like there were a few episodes where because of the nature of the opening title sequence um it was really jarring based on the cold open yeah to go into this sort of fun poppy song right um yeah. i i think i think they would have been better served to i always think of the episode where um um the cold open is that we're at trip's funeral right um that's a that is a dark heavy cold open yes been a long road like it's it's so it's so jarring i kind of wish they had just done the title on a black card and then let it fade out and fade back in and then just run the credits over footage and right yeah let let us stay in that heavy moment and go into the episode but again it's 20 years after the fact there's not much we could do about it i mean that's true (laughs) i I mean i suppose some someone it's like a a fan out there could uh yeah yeah you know it's been done before (laughs) recut it together and and kind of change some things yeah yeah before but yeah absolutely i so yeah, you you mentioned the episodic nature of the first two seasons. What did you think of the Zindi War season three? How did you think that played out with the characters coming from this one place and then boom, there's this big tragedy? Obviously, um, it was commentary on 9-11. Right. But yeah. um, you know, this big tragedy hits Earth and now 
the focus of Enterprise and her crew has shifted. It's no longer exploration. It is now revenge. How do, how do you feel that season three played? I think it was, that's, that's, that's a tough call, man. It, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy that season because I did, but there were times that, and there were a few episodes where it wasn't so much Zindi focused. Right. I, um, I can think of a few, what's the one where they're inside? It's almost like the, it's almost like the episode of Next Generation where they were inside the Dyson Sphere, but it was uh, right. That was there. yeah. There were a f- there were part of the elements. Uh, one of the elements of the Zindi War were these spheres that were set up to establish this zone called yeah. the Expanse. Yes. Um, yes, and I think the Zindi were working closely with the Sphere Builders, right? Um, yeah. Unknowingly, cool. I think unknowingly worshiping the sphere builders Mm -hmm. as these deities when the sphere builders were trying to expand their region of space and they were using the Zindi as basically their hired guns without them knowing it. Right. Yeah. And it was a little, I think it was an interesting play to show that governments or people in power do use certain individuals of perhaps uh, lower economic status or lower intelligence to do their bidding or dirty work, if you will. Um, what that is commenting on in our real world is a discussion for a different show, a smarter show. I am not, the, I am not the host to comment on some, on such you know, things. It, it, <laughs> it's odd that you say that because it, it, there's a little bit of a parallel there to the episode that we're talking about with, uh, um, with uh, Malcolm. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, yeah. Cause it, I, I think it's one of those, things to show like absolute power corrupts absolutely Mm. no matter who has the power (laughs) right Mm -hmm. um you know i'm quick to unless you're spider-man i mean right marker yeah yeah unless you're peter parker (laughs) it's funny that you mentioned marvel because i recently rewatched one of my favorite marvel movies winter soldier Okay. Because my wife was like, what, what is your favorite? And I was like, honestly, it's Winter Soldier. And she's like, really? Why? I was like, because it doesn't watch like a superhero movie. Not it yet. watches like a, it watches like a espionage spy political yep. thriller. Yes. It just happens to have Captain America in it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but in that movie. Which I've seen Cap work like that in, in comics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, There's been times Nick where. Fury and, you know. Oh. Secret Avengers, like a lot of people forget Secret Avengers was largely black ops. They were killing people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But part of that part of that movie, there's a conversation between Steve Rogers and Nick Fury. You know, I read those SSR files. Greatest generation. That's just some nasty stuff. And I I think a lot of people like to forget those things of like, oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. We weren't just Captain America punching out adolf hitler right we had american citizens in detention camps yes read george takei's book like Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it's we weren't always the good guys not even we're in world war ii like yes there and i think a lot of that stuff does get commented on in star trek i mean start good science fiction has always been a mirror held up to society and it may be 
it yeah. may be showing us, hey, this is in our past. If we don't learn from it, we're going to repeat the same thing in the future. Right. Um, yeah. So there, I think there's a lot of that. And here we see it again with what Malcolm goes through. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, throughout the Star Trek franchise, there have been different comparisons of people in power commenting on maybe uh, a nation overseas. Um, I've talked with other podcasters overseas about Star Trek and about Enterprise specifically, and the conversation always ends up coming back to Enterprise is more American, quote unquote, American than any other part of the Star Trek franchise. And I have to agree, especially, yeah, and coming out of, I really have been trying to talk about 9-11 less and less. Well, <laughs> but I mean, when you talk about enterprise, have. you kind of have to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with, with that, it's kind of interesting because there was this big surge of patriot, of quote unquote patriotism right after 9-11, uh, similar to what happened the day after uh, Pearl Harbor was bombed. Yeah. Talking mm-hmm. about World War II. Uh, but yeah, there was there was this big surge of American pride, uh, you can say. And, you know, some of it was for good. A lot of it wasn't. And a lot of it was misdirected. Oh, yeah. um, and here we see it again. You know, we saw it in World War II. We saw it in 9-11. And here we're seeing it again depicted in Enterprise where Jonathan Archer, right off the bat, not super cool with Vulcans. It takes him a long time to come around. He's he's racist, xenophobic, and sexist, like all at the same time. Right, like, yeah. Whoa, dude. <laughs> Can we dial it back on some of these a, li- a little bit? But, uh, you know, here again, you know, we're, you know, at the beginning of Enterprise, Starfleet is basically being run out of a storefront next to like H&R Block and Dollar General. Um but as Starfleet grows and grows in resources and grows in power and starts accumulating allies throughout the galaxy, it becomes a heavy player to be able to go up toe to toe with the Klingons and eventually the Romulans mm-hmm. and eventually the Dominion. Like, I mean, there the Federation becomes a superpower. And then right. we and then yeah. we see in Picard where the Federation doesn't always make great decisions. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, how could you? Yeah. Yeah. Again, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Whether yeah. you want it to or not. Um, but yeah. So uh, without getting too much further into the episodes, let's get to this week's recap brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, Rev J, Jerry Antimano, Cosmic Crit, and Kitty B. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Friday, a farewell. Are you leaving because of me? A hostage. Kill me if you must. I won't assist you. A spy. You haven't told Archer. And all are members of the Enterprise crew. You betrayed everything that uniform stands for. Enterprise returns to Earth in time for the launch of the second NX-class starship, Columbia. And Trip prepares for his transfer. Meanwhile, Hoshi and Doc Flocks are attacked in San Francisco, and Flocks is kidnapped. Archer and Reed investigate the scene, and Reed is given a secret assignment by a secretive agent that he seems to secretly know. Secretly. 
T'Pol, seeking information from Hoshi, conducts her first mind meld, and the two realize that the attackers spoke Rigelian. They discover that a Rigelian freighter recently left orbit and head off pursuit. On Columbia, Trip ruffles a few feathers of his new team, and Captain Hernandez asks the reasons behind his transfer. Later, T'Pol, in her quarters, begins to meditate and mentally goes to her white cloud quiet place, now available at your local Apple store, only to have a slightly confused but still amused Trip show up and start arguing with her. The moment of the shared vision, despite being on different ships, is broken when a disoriented trip appears to come out of a momentary daydream on Columbia. Enterprise locates a destroyed Rigelian ship, and while investigating, they're suddenly attacked and boarded. Makos repel the attack. Uh-oh, better get Mako! And a captured alien is taken to sickbay, where scanners show that despite his human appearance, he is in fact Klingon. Archer then discovers Reed's complicity in evidence tampering and confines him to the brig. He also learns that the boarders sabotage the ship, and Archer orders maximum warp in order to prevent the core from overloading. The ship increases to warp 5.2, the fastest it has ever been. Phlox is taken to Kovat, a Klingon colony where General Uncle Phil and Dr. Antax seek his help to cure a Klingon plague. To Phlox's horror, Uncle Phil kills an infected Klingon so that an autopsy can be performed. Phlox determines that the victim's DNA has been supplemented with that of a genetically augmented human. Phlox also learns from Antak that they experimented with augmented DNA after the events seen in Season 4, Episode 4, but it self-mutated and escaped. Antak and Phlox are told that they have five days to cure the outbreak before it's too late. Antak suggests that the only course of action is to create stable augmented Klingons, but Phlox refuses to assist further. And then... Friday. Your ships are now the property of the Klingon Empire. They captured a crewman. Came to get my doctor back. We need him here. They've infiltrated the ship. You endangered every member of this crew. And soon, they'll have the captain. With the ship unable to decrease speed below warp 5, and the warp core reaching dangerous levels, Columbia paces them to provide assistance. However... The crew realize that the transporter cannot be used at warp, so the ships will need to maneuver in close proximity in order for Trip to be transferred. Archer releases Reed from the brig to perform the transfer. Once on Enterprise, Trip successfully performs a rapid non-standard cold boot on the warp engine, which purges the Klingon subroutines. Trip then agrees to remain on board temporarily to assist with repairs. Meanwhile, Antak and a badly beaten Phlox update Uncle Phil on their progress. Uncle Phil contacts Admiral Krell, who tells him that if a cure is not completed soon, the facility will be eradicated in order to contain the disease. Back on Enterprise, Archer questions Reed about his recent actions and is contacted by Harris from Section 31, a secretive agency within Starfleet. Harris reveals that Phlox is on an important mission and little else but Reed reveals his location as Kovat. Harris contacts Krell to inform him that Enterprise is on the way, and Krell reveals that he used Harris. Enterprise arrives at the colony, and Archer beams down to the base with Marab to confront the Klingons and rescue flocks. Krell's Klingon battlecruiser and two birds of prey arrive in orbit, and Krell orders the ships to destroy the colony. Enterprise attempts to intervene, but is engaged by the birds of prey. There was a firefight! 
Columbia arrives and joins combat with the two birds of prey, while Enterprise impedes the battlecruiser. Phlox infects a voluntarily restrained archer as he needs human antibodies for the cure. Antac then transports a canister of the virus onto the battlecruiser, which infects the crew, including Krell. Needing the cure from Phlox, Krell stands down the attack, and the Klingon High Council soon agrees to distribute the cure throughout the Empire. Harris contacts Reed, thanking him and confirming that the plan proceeded as per Section 31's projections, stabilizing the leadership of the Klingon Empire while scaring it off from augment experimentation. So we're seeing a lot of things sort of coming into focus with the augments and the Klingon Empire. Um, did you happen to watch the three episode arc with guest star Brent Spiner before this, before this, uh, before these two episodes? Not recently, but I, I do remember it. Yeah. yeah. Though I think those three episodes really lead into this very, very well, because that deals with not only uh, Dr. Sung and his eventual um, leading to artificial intelligence and artificial life, but to find out that he was heavily involved with the augment program, um, which kind of, you know, spoilers for Picard season two, um, we find out that the Sung family was heavily involved in the creation of the augments in the, uh, in the 21st century. Yeah. So I think this is kind of a nice uh, tie-in. I think that's one of the things that when uh, Berman and Braga handed over the reins of show running enterprise to Manny Cotto, who was more focused on connecting enterprise to the rest of the franchise. I thought this was a really smart move, not only wrapping up, some of the details from the augment uh, storyline that they had done with Brent Spiner, but also like tying in why Klingons look the way they do in the original series, as opposed to the TNG era and how they looked at the beginning of enterprise till now. Um, And it also comes into play in discovery as well, because the Klingons in discovery look very different. (laughs) Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, so what do you think of, you know, the transitioning of different aesthetics, being an artist working in a visual medium, we've seen a lot of uh, characters undergo certain visual changes throughout the decades. You know, I think, I think of Batman, I'm a big Batman guy and I have an affinity for the detective 27 version of Batman with the, with the almost rabbit ears and the purple gloves and the okay yeah and yeah. Uh, all of that. So, what do you think about the aesthetic change of the Klingons from from Broken Bow to now to TOS back to the TNG era? How do you how do you feel about all of that? I mean, obviously the the original series. I guess they kind of. I suppose it was just a decision. The decision was made that that's how the Klingons will look we don't have to spend that much money just you know put a little makeup on yeah not like they would do the andorians and and in those episodes which were also pretty cool yeah uh i liked those klingons uh the way they looked then um the tos klingons yeah yeah and um i like that it was sort of explained in enterprise but also 
I do like a little mystery and 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 let letting the letting the the viewer like as an artist like you you want to kind of let the viewer bring their own um thoughts uh to the piece yeah so a little bit of mystery there is a good thing as far as i'm concerned so having said that those uh the original series klingons thinking about kang and core uh, and then later on, you see those two in Deep Space Nine, and they do have forehead ridges. So yep. how did that happen? You know, yeah. I've never heard that <laughs> explained, and I don't know necessarily if I want it explained. Right, right. You know, kind of leave it up to the imagination. But uh, yeah, I love that they can play with, with that kind of thing. Do you have, um, you know, as I mentioned, you're working in art and heavily involved with comic book creations do you have a favorite vintage look of a character as opposed to their modern look just as as anyone or yeah just star trek or or it can be star trek but i mean you know dc marvel or otherwise oh man that's a tough one too dude i'd have to think about that I'd, i'd i'd really have to think about that i to be honest i you know in looking at uh, you know, and looking at some of the depictions of some of the characters throughout, uh, you know, throughout their tenure in the comic book industry, I really enjoy the more street level look of Wolverine as opposed to the black leather clad or full armor, you know, full, full spandex look. I right, kind of, yeah. I kind of like the idea that his, his arms are free. You know, and you can. Are you talking about kind of like the patch, patch era? Yeah, yeah, the patch, uh, the patch look uh, for Wolverine. I'm also a big fan of Mister Fix It. Oh God, I love Mister Fix It. Yeah, for those of you who out there who don't know, was there a better pair? I mean, oh my God, such a great pair. For those of you who don't know who Mister Fix It is, the Incredible Hulk had an alternate personality, not Bruce Banner, and it was this like 1920s 1930s era gangster named mr fix it and he wore a fedora and the uh the pinstripe suit and he was this gangster but he was still in full hulk mode mm-hmm. he was he was he had reverted back to gray he, he had yeah he had gone back to gray as opposed to green but um Wolverine would also go around as patch and he wore a patch over his eye and they were sort of this weird buddy cop type vibe between the two of them, but they were heavily involved in like the underworld, but they were also still, they were also still very much Hulk and Wolverine, but they worked together and aesthetically it was really cool because like people, people, people look at Hugh Jackman and think that that's what Wolverine looks like. Right. Peter um it, Wolverine is actually probably closer to someone like Peter Dinklage's size <laughs> as opposed yeah. to Wolverine yeah. or as opposed to Hugh Jackman who's like what 66162 six, something like that. Is he that tall? I have no idea. Uh yeah, Hugh Jackman's kind of a big dude. Uh but yeah, yeah I remember Wolverine. there were times you know in the 80s and 90s you you're reading a comic and somebody like Cap or somebody like they they would mention his size. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) either making fun of them or, you know, just kind of calling them some kind of nickname or something like that. Sure. Yeah. The only one smaller was Puck, as far as I know. Yeah, as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, and you know, in talking about the Marvel movies, I think with that first Captain America movie, I kind of dug that he had the uniform on, but he put on like the tack pants, the t- or right. the tactical pants, yeah, the brown boots, and he grabbed a helmet, and it was that old style helmet, but he had like the bomber jacket, right, and. Yeah. I really dug that aesthetic. Like it I really, cool. looked, yeah, it looked really cool. And yeah. there's, and don't get me wrong. Like the Iron Man suits are fantastic, but there's mm-hmm. a part of me that really loves that Mark one suit. That oh yeah. Just stitched together and soldered together. In oh a my cave. God. Like yes. there's something very just heavy about it. And like no nonsense, like no frills at all. Like, <laughs> He doesn't have he doesn't have screens over his eyes. His mask has eye holes. That's that's it. (laughs) And he's got he's got like a couple of RPG launchers. I think he's got a flamethrower and a couple thrusters to get himself out of there. And that's about it. That's really all he had. And that there's something kind of pure about that, where it's kind of like it was just Tony Stark, but having to go against a whole battalion of these terrorists in their own, in their own camp and escape. Now, when he shows back up in, um, you know, back in country in full iron, you know, in the Mark two, the yeah. Mark two armor, he takes them down so easily. It's like, Oh yeah. Not even trying. Uh, but there's something a little bit, better about the struggle that tony stark has in the mark one armor um i really dig that and that the the i think it's the mark one armor in the the 60s comics mm-hmm. with the weird skirt yes yeah it's it it like, got this weird metal skirt you know <laughs> like i'm not i'm not against it you know but i was, I was like wow that's got a weird metal skirt on. That that know? was a design choice. Like, it really was. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There was, and, and it was gray at first, and then I think yeah. once he got back stateside, like they went gold. Yeah. Which I mm-hmm. thought was really cool that they kind of included that element in that first movie of like, hey, if if you're planning on leaving the planet, you might want to change up the metals in your suit. <laughs> right. And so he goes all gold and we see it rendered on the computer screen, but that's when he adds the, the red paint and there you get the, yeah. the more modern Iron Man look. But, you know, in um, I, I, you know, going back to the early Marvel movies, long before the MCU, there was that first X-Men movie where they weren't in spandex. They were in and they make a joke about it. What would you prefer? yellow spandex right yeah but they're all wearing this black leather this black leather gear and it was just kind of like that's not what the x-men look like and they're like we know we put them in spandex it looks it looked ridiculous that's why we went with this oh i didn't know that they actually shot some things with them in like or they costumes yeah they did they did uh they if i i think it's in the special features and you can probably find it online um that. that they did they did extensive costume testing with suits that looked more uh realistic to the book like yeah. more more uh page to screen direct interpretations right and they're like we just couldn't get it to not look ridiculous right so we decided uh, to scrap that all together and go with something which you know. is cool and i yeah. get it and i love that first next actually i they're 
I like a good many of those X-Men movies. And when I think about the progression of those, uh, and I know we're kind of getting sidetracked here, but um, the progression of the costumes Mm -hmm. to first class. Yeah. And it was kind of this really nice blend Mm -hmm. of like practicality of those leather suits with some actual costume flair yeah. yeah it was sort of a flight suit but also like coveralls but it yeah had, and you have your you know you've got your yeah it had your all the buckles and harnesses that you needed for like parachutes yes. or whatever other gear you had yeah it made sense yeah. yeah and then you look at stuff like uh chris nolan's batman where they sort of meticulously show you bruce building the suit it wasn't just oh i just happened to have this leather armor with a with a bat right. symbol in my yeah. basement like no he you you see him like he's painting this body armor that was meant for soldiers and he takes this piece of his ninja gear and integrates that and he takes this earpiece and puts it in this other part that hooks to a mask and and uh you know parachute you know, hey, we needed, I need something to help me glide between buildings. So we get this parachute material and it makes a cape and right, all of that stuff. It was pretty, it was pretty interesting. And then you get stuff like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man where he goes to the wrestling match against Macho Man or Bones, <laughs> Bonesaw. And, uh, and he's, he's not wearing, he's not wearing the blue and red spandex. He's basically wearing sweatpants and <laughs> yes. And yeah. uh, and like very very DIY uh, in your in your basement Spider Man early version of Spider Man costume, uh, but it's it's always kind of fun to see that. And then you know looking at stuff like even the more modern stuff like Doctor Strange showing the progression of him showing up in Camertage and the progression that he takes over time of his costume sort of changing as he increases in his knowledge of the mystic arts yeah. where he's eventually wearing the blue, the blue um, tunic that we are used to. Mm-hmm. And then he encounters the red Cape that, you know, ends up working with him. Yes. Uh, and that's, and that's a great look. Um, yeah. yeah it's fantastic. One more thing about comic book characters and their, and their funky looks over the years. I've already declared my love for detective 27 batman <laughs> which arguably one of the more ridiculous looking batman costumes yeah but yeah. How, however not nearly as ridiculous as the 70s nightwing costume with the gigantic <laughs> collar and the low cut uh open uniform showing off the chest <laughs> you know what man that was epic I mean, it's <laughs> epic. Truly can, epic. You, can you imagine being a a, a supervillain and getting your ass handed to you <laughs> by somebody in a costume like that oh my god one of, one of my favorite characters is uh captain cold mm. and yeah. people are like why do you he looks so stupid he dressed like an eskimo and i'm like this is a can you imagine being at the bank you're just at the bank yeah and here this guy comes in dressed like that mm-hmm. and he's got a freeze ray gun and then <laughs> goes sideways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. I love that. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah man, sure. like the weirder, the better pretty much. Yeah. I mean, 
the comic but a movie though like i get you know i get that you couldn't kind of pull that off too much yeah it's uh it's it's a little it's a little weird i mean and you look at stuff like i mean looking at stuff hell we have we haven't even touched on female comic book characters right uh, and their looks you know uh, over the years all in there yeah yeah well it's you know there was a lot of you know it seems like a lot of artists especially into the 90s which mm. were was kind of a dark time for comics a lot of things oh, uh, yeah the comic book industry almost folded basically yes. yeah uh in you know in a in a phrase uh but there was i think there was a big movement of like big guns big boobs this yeah. is this is and you know eventually thank god somebody was just like hey you know what that's not that costume isn't gonna work you know what she you're <laughs> that costume is up her butt like it's not exactly conducive to fighting crime <laughs> right yeah uh and then it was sort of, and then it was dialed back and i think a lot of artists ended up sort of reassessing how they were presenting women in comics and sort of drawing them, you know, there was a, Hey, stop and think. And it's like, okay, we're not talking about supermodels here. We're talking about women who are jumping across rooftops and fighting multiple people. They're probably not going to look like Victoria's secret models. They're going to look more at They're going to be more solid, more athletic. And they started looking at more, female athletes that you would see in the Olympics and started seeing, you know, there was a, there was a, a step back in the art form going back to a more realistic body style of like, actually the shoulders are shaped like this and the torso right, is yeah. shaped like this yeah. and the hips are actually here and not way up here. <laughs> right, yeah. And, you know, calves are shaped like this for someone who runs a lot and jumps really high. They're going to have really solid calves, you know, and, and really solid thighs. Look at look at bad look at Batman's quads. They are massive. <laughs> He's right. Jumping off of rooftop off of rooftops, and he doesn't have sp- superpowers. So, you know, uh, you know, same the same rules apply. You know, physics. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, biology. <laughs> you cannot change the laws of physics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, getting back, getting back into Star Trek, I thought it was really interesting and fast and qu- honestly quite disturbing when we see the Klingons without their forehead ridges, but they still have the hair, the facial yeah. hair, the armor, but they're sitting in, they're sitting in sick bay with smooth foreheads going like, uh, this is going to take some getting used to. <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, yeah, you and me both, brother. <laughs> they're still recognizable as Klingon. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah, it is wild. And now the one, uh, the Klingon doctor, uh, well, not Dr. Phil, what were you calling him earlier? <laughs> general, general uncle Phil, general uncle, <laughs> uncle Phil's son. He was yeah. the one that was in the sick bay, right? Yeah. He was the one they captured. Yeah. And he looked like some kind of a, like a, Klingon version of something that would be painted on the cover of a romance novel or something like yeah. he was like an attractive, you know, man. My first thought when I said, and this is going to be real, this is a real deep cut. A lot of the listeners probably aren't going to get this, but he, to me, he looked like somebody you'd see walking around the streets of Asheville, North Carolina, right? The, the hair, the clothes, like 
I've seen that dude walking around <laughs> you downtown. Ain't wrong, man. <laughs> yeah, you ain't wrong, man. <laughs> uh, for the listeners, Asheville, North Carolina is known for three types of people, the urban hikers, the hippies, and the homeless. And they all kind of look very, very similar. Very to- similar. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have a little bit of discernment, I guess. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I actually, have a, I actually have a joke in my act about going to Asheville and not being able to tell the difference between yeah. the urban hikers, the hippies, and the homeless. So I end up handing out cash to almost everyone. <laughs> Just to everybody you see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here, have some. Yep. Here you go. Actually, sir, I own this art gra- art this art gallery. <laughs> okay. My bad. Sorry. Uh, but yeah. But Todd's like, okay, that's great. Just get yourself a little something. <laughs> Just get yourself a little something. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Well, um, yeah, and it's uh, it's really interesting to see, uh, you know. Uh, departing from the Klingons for just a bit, but seeing Trip interacting with like basically overcorrecting. He's basically having to overcorrect and having to like really crack down and like, you know what? I'm not going to have any emotional attachments. And, you know, my crew on the Columbia is going to be even better than the Enterprise. I'm going to make, I'm going to make this so much better. Have you ever had, have you ever had a working experience where you've gone from one place to the other and you think right off the bat of like, you know what? This is going to be better than the last place. I'm going to do my dead level best to make it the top notch uh, working experience, not only for me, but for the company and all this stuff. And did that last? Have you ever had an experience like that? Um, nearly every time I've had a different job, there, there's been a little bit of that. Yeah. But the main, the main one that I can think of is I worked for um, Top Shelf Comics for a while in their warehouse yeah yeah and um that was just amazing because it 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 was it there weren't many there weren't many of us and we were a family Mm. so yeah the chris staros was the was the owner and you know it was great man like i would i would i would drive to the warehouse in georgia and i would work on the weekend and i would stay with chris and we would have this great time and that was one of the best jobs I think I've ever had. Oh wow! Um, yeah, that was great. About what year? What year was that? Oh God, dude! Um, I don't remember, mm. Todd. I really don't. That's okay. That's all I'll right. tell you. I was I'll, just curious. I'll send you a message later when I I'll yeah. ask Chris and 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 he'll he'll be able to tell me. But yeah, yeah, that's something I'll send you later on. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. I yeah, yeah I mean, it's been. Man, has it been almost 20 years since I first did that? Oh man. Maybe it has. <laughs> but I remember the the first time I was I was there, I was helping out with the they would have a sale every year, right? Right. So I'd invited I'd been invited to come help with the sale. And um Staros told me he was like, he was like, look, man, whatever you want, you know, just take it. Whatever you want, just take it. And I gave him the, the whole shifty eye, you know, look like, is this guy serious? Man, I must have left there with like three or four giant boxes filled with like every book that Top Shelf published. Nice. Because nice. I was thinking to myself, you know, am I ever going to come back here? Because if I don't, you know, yeah, what did I leave, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Take advantage while, while you can, man. Oh, it was, it was sad. 
but yeah anyway yeah it's i think i've experienced that a little bit myself with uh seemingly every job that i had in my career like right after high because i you know was lucky lucky enough that mom and dad were like hey look you're gonna have the rest of your life to work we don't want you to work while you're in high school okay fine a lot of people work in high school and that's great uh, but I didn't get my first job until after I graduated and I started waiting tables and I was not good at it, <laughs> but I knew some folks that, uh, after a while of waiting tables, they were like, Hey, come work for us in this office. And like, Ooh, like I'll get my own desk and all right. this stuff. Yep. Tur- turns out I was selling books to bookstores over the phone. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I was cold calling stores. I was like, Oh, this is not great this is was it not that's what my next question was going to be it was so bad and i again i was not good at it (laughs) i was very personable but you know nobody wants a call from a salesman nobody does yeah they really don't even if you need one you don't want one (laughs) right yeah Yeah. uh after that was uh i i swung i swung a hammer for a while for uh I was a, I was a grunt for a windows installation company. That was, I mean, that was a big departure from the, from the office life. Yeah. Um, Did you do that for very long? No, because I, the, the, in short, the gentleman who owned the company was insufferable, which, which, which sounds Sounds very stereotypical of like, oh, my boss is a real jerk. Like, not necessarily. I'm, I'm pretty easygoing and I can get along with just about anybody. Yeah. Over a period of about four or five weeks, this man berated me every single day, every day to a point where at one point we were on a job site somewhere, I forget where, and he had been, he had been at me all day long and it was just the two of us. And I thought, you know what? It'd be a while before they found his body. And that's when I looked down and I saw the hammer in my hand. I dropped the hammer and said, I quit. You scared <laughs> like, yourself. Yep. I was just like, I, I, I saw the future for a second. You scared yourself. <laughs> I was just like, I am done. I am absolutely done. Um, that. Ap- yeah. After that was, uh, after that was the YMCA, which was, that was fine. I, I I had a good time at the YMCA. Um, my brother also worked there. So that was kind of fun. Um, it was a lot of folks my age. So there was a lot of uh, camaraderie. We're all, you know, there together. Um, but after that uh, was when a buddy of mine who was working at the detention center downtown at the county jail oh, like, wow. was like, hey, you're you're certified to do, you know, CPR, AED. Uh, bus driver you've been doing martial arts for a long long time i was like yeah 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 he goes you know uh you can come downtown work for us we'll pay you twice as much really okay <laughs> i ended up going and being a correction well not corrections a uh detention officer a jailer i was a jailer nice. for, yeah i was a jailer for three years i like that title jailer you know what i mean like you could you can say i was a jailer you yeah know what I mean? yeah i was a, i was a jailer i was a turnkey yeah absolutely <laughs> and they still have keys like they're big <laughs> they're really, Do they big. really? Yeah. oh yeah yeah huge giant keys yeah matt oh yeah they're easily yeah good you know six to eight inches that's uh, fast and like and like no thick yeah, like thick metal keys yeah. oh wow dude um steel doors yeah and not much has changed about 
about corrections and jail cells and prison cells over the years. Yeah, it can't all be the cube. Yeah, you know? well, it was so funny because like in the winter, I would show up at work and uh, the inmates were like, Davis, can you can you cut the heat on, man? I'm like, guys, I could set the building on fire. You're in a concrete and metal box in the middle of winter. Sorry, <laughs> there's That's nothing fair. I can do, yeah, guys. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but after that was when I went to, uh, Greenville city police. And then I went to, uh, I was there for a grand total of about five or 10 minutes. And then I went to, uh, uh, the college out in Spartanburg and was a campus police officer, which was an absolute blast. That was a lot of fun. Um, I did that for three years and then, uh, moved to Florida, came back, went back to school, became a paralegal and did the paralegal thing for about three years. And now I'm full-time podcasting. So, (laughs) but yeah, in every one of those little things, it was just kind of like, it got to a point where it's like, okay, that's the end of, this is the end of this chapter. It's got to get better the next chapter. Right. And I think initially hitting the ground running, it was a lot of really great. Oh man, this is, this is different. This is new. This is exciting. And then once you get over that initial hump, it's just kind of like, oh, this is the grind. And this is, this is, yeah, you, you get over that, is. that little yeah. honeymoon stage and it's yeah. like, oh yeah, this is a job. Yep. It's a job. It's Here a job. we are. This is the yeah. night. It's, it's my nine to five from midnight right. to 8 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. With, uh, with working uh, my gosh, my entire career in law enforcement was my shift was midnight to 8 a.m. So I was eating breakfast food for lunch in the middle of the night. So, cause my lunch break was right around four. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just kind of like, all right, what do we have? It's like, well, you can have a salad or eggs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like scrambled eggs and hash browns. I'm like, uh, I guess I'll have a Coke then. Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, it's it, my work, my, my resume, my resume reads like a C, like I'm a CIA operative. Like this guy's done a lot of different things. That's for, kind of rad though. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Unless you've actually done those jobs. It's not so <laughs> well, rad. Yeah. Uh, jobs. We get yeah, we, jobs. We're back to it. Yeah. <laughs> jobs. Yeah. I yeah. But I think, I, I think honestly, you know, the latter half of my, you know, nine to five career before getting into podcasting full time, I think the I think I learned the most at the detention center um, at the county jail because you kind of learn how to handle you know handle inmates one on one. Yeah. Um, you're also learning the judges. You're learning the paperwork. You're learning the system. You're kind of boots on the ground, quite literally, um, in dealing in dealing with folks on a day to day basis, as opposed to even working the street. You might go six, 10, 12 hours and ne- and never get out of your patrol car. That right. might happen, yeah. But detention center, there's there, there's something to do. There's always <laughs> if you don't if you don't think you have something to do, we'll find you something to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got that. And then getting into getting into the legal field after my law enforcement career, getting into the law firms and becoming a paralegal, like it was from a different angle because I was working for criminal defense, and part of the reason I got hired was because I had the law enforcement background. Right. I could look at a police report, read it and know what it means. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and again, seeing, you know, dealing with folks, uh, on that level, you know, uh, 
you come into it with again again there's the honeymoon phase yeah like oh this is going to be this is going to be this type of thing like all the time and then sort of the day you know the nine to five grind sort of sets in the honeymoon period is over and it's like oh this is what i'm doing i'm watching this particular police officer die 117 times like right yeah how much of this can I take, you know, yeah. or I'm listening to, I'm listening to testimony of alleged victims of sexual assault and trying to find the loopholes in their testimony so that we can get our client a reduced sentence or no sentence. Or, <laughs> like, yeah. How much of that can I take? Right. Uh, yeah. Like, I yeah. It. I, it's, I'm digressing here, but like, uh, yeah, you know, trip comes in and starts barking orders at people and it's just, Oh, dude, maybe, maybe a little more carrot and a little less stick, man. Like I I've worked for, you know, sergeants and lieutenants who came into it with that attitude and I'm like, Ooh, this is, this is going to be hard for all of us. <laughs> I, w- I wonder how much of that was a release for him though. Like, uh, cause he obviously his interactions with, with to Paul before he left the ship where he kind of ignored her yeah. questions of, yeah. are you leaving because of me? Right. And he immediately changed the subject to something else, you yeah. know, which answered, I feel, answered her question. Yeah. And she's presented herself as so emotionally distant and emotionally cold yeah. that he's decided to do the same in kind. Right. Yeah. Not really knowing that she, I don't, I don't think Trip ever knew that she had the addiction to Torellium D, which affected which affected so she her kept that, she kept that under wraps yeah, yeah i don't think right. i don't think flocks ever clued him into that um because hipaa's not a thing in the in <laughs> our fleet, apparently uh but yeah i don't think he was ever privy to that knowledge i think if he had been maybe he might feel a little bit differently but there again like she doesn't trust him with that information she's approaching things very cold like a vulcan you know very, very unemotional yeah lots of logic mm-hmm. and so he decides to do the same and she's not happy about it well this is what you've given me to work with right so yeah. here's here's what we got to do i remember there was a lieutenant and this is the last story i'll tell about working at the jail <laughs> oh that's fine man but there was a lieutenant who uh, was more stick than carrot um, and we were in a particular, uh, security situation where we had to conduct count. We conducted count three times a day, like clockwork. Um, and at one point a group came back from court and we were in the middle of count. So they had to stay in one spot so we could finish up count, confirm the count, and then we can go back to normal operations. Okay. This one particular inmate had just come back from court with a life sentence. So not a lot to lose. Right. This particular lieutenant decided to get in his face about something. And I was working in control and I could see the video feed. And I saw that one inmate, that inmates drop his foot back. I was like, oh, again, I come from a martial arts background. I can see it coming. I was like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. And sure enough, he decked that lieutenant for all like, oh, like his, (laughs) like he was trying to drill for gold man he was just like bam just hit him for all he was worth and knowing the section of the jail that they were in there were a lot of officers in that particular section they didn't get there for an extra couple seconds oh my god (laughs) 
I worked in the control room again the next night. I think everyone from Shift at one point came to the control room and said, hey, can you rewind the tape of last night? I said, yep, I got it right here. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Here it is in three, two, one, bam. <laughs> They're like, oh, that was great. I was like, yeah, you want to see it again? So well, was it was it that they, they kind of wanted to see this guy get, get punched? Yeah. yeah. All the officers were just like, oh, it was that lieutenant. I definitely want to see that. <laughs> oh, it was Harvey Keitel. Okay. <laughs> it was a bad lieutenant. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, man. Well, I, you know, working with different types of people and, uh, you know, especially in a creative environment. There's uh, no, sh no shortage of people with their hands in the project. And when things go right, when things go wrong, no matter what, you can always ask the question, who do we blame? So let's get to our section uh, covering the stats of these particular episodes. We've got a lot to cover. I'm going to try to get through it here. Uh, first episode, Affliction, which was written, the story was written by Manny Cotto, whose last writing was season four, episode 14, The Anar. And the teleplay was penned by Mike Sussman, whose last work was season four, episode 12, Babel One. Both of those we discussed along with United on episode 77. The episode was directed by Michael Grossman, whose last episode directing was season four, episode seven, Kirshara, which we discussed with Wes from Twin City Trekkies back on episode 74. The guest stars, we have Mark Warden as the Klingon prisoner. He's a Canadian actor. He's worked in television and voiceovers, but he is one of four actors to play the character Alexander Rojenko, a.k.a. the son of Worf, which he did in 1997 on Deep Space Nine, Season 6, Episode 3, Sons and Daughters, and Season 6, Episode 7, You Are Cordially Invited. And then we also have Mr. Seth MacFarlane as Ensign Rivers. Now, as we've talked a little bit about um, Seth MacFarlane's career, after Family Guy's revival in 2005, MacFarlane launched a second long-running su successful adult animated series on Fox called American Dad. Uh, to date, it's his only animated show that has never been canceled. However, it did change networks to TBS in 2014, following its 11th season. Uh, the show follows an eccentric upper middle class family in the fictional city of Langley Falls, Virginia. There's father, husband, CIA agent, Republican and breadwinner Stan, voiced by McFarlane, his wife, Francine, voiced by Wendy Shaw, their their leftist hippie college age daughter, Haley, voiced by McFarlane's real life sister, Rachel, and their dorky high school aged son, Steve, voiced by Scott Grimes. There's also the family's unusual goldfish, Klaus who has the brain of an East German athlete voiced by D Bradley Baker, Roger, the alien who is a deceitful, treacherous, self-serving master of disguise also vo voiced by McFarlane and Haley's boyfriend and later husband, Jeff Fisher voiced by Jeff Fisher. Don't ask. Uh, then we have Stan's boss, the director of the CIA, Avery Bullock, who is played by none other than captain Jean-Luc Picard himself, Sir Patrick Stewart. On September 27th, 2009, the first official spinoff to Family Guy premiered on Fox titled The Cleveland Show. Uh, Mike Henry voices two of the show's main characters, Cleveland Brown and his stepson, Rallo Tubbs. Sana Lathan uh, voices Donna Tubbs, the wife of Cleveland. 
Nia Long provided the voice of Donna's daughter, Roberta, during the first 13 episodes, but was then replaced by the younger-sounding Reagan Gomez Preston. Kevin Michael Richardson plays Cleveland Jr., as well as Cleveland's next-door neighbor, Lester. Jason Sudeikis plays one of Cleveland's drinking buddies, Holt Richter, and Terry Kimple, one of Cleveland's co-workers at Waterman Cable. And Seth MacFarlane played Tim the Bear up until he grew tired of it and replaced himself with Jess Harnell, beginning with season three, episode 10 and onward. MacFarlane hosted the Comedy Central roast of David Hasselhoff on August 15th, 2010. Uh, Besides the usual suspects, such as Jeff Ross, Lisa Lampanelli, and Whitney Cummings, Seth was joined on stage by Pamela Anderson. Hulk Hogan, Jerry Springer, George Hamilton, and the late legends Greg Giraldo and Gilbert Gottfried. Seth would follow this with a roast of the 45th President of the United States, adding Anthony Jeselnik to the usual suspects, along with Larry King, Marley Matlin, Snoop Dogg, and Mike the Situation Sorrentino. Uh, Three times the charm on Seth's final roast, this one of actor Charlie Sheen, with Amy Schumer being added to the regular roster, SNL alum John Lovitz, another lost legend Patrice O'Neill, Jackass's Steve-O, the champ Mike Tyson, actress Kate Walsh, and Captain James Tiberius Kirk, a.k.a. William Shatner, who'd received his roast back in 06 at the hands of Star Trek alum Jason Alexander, Andy Dick, Michelle Nichols, Patton Oswalt, George Takei, Leonard Nimoy, Sarah Silverman, and Clint Howard. On September 27th, 2011, Seth would release his first studio album titled Music is Better Than Words. The swing big band album would go on to receive two Grammy nominations, uh, one for Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album and another for Best Engineered Album Non-Classical. Fans would finally get to see, or hear rather, McFarlane next to Marky Mark on June 29th, 2012, with him writing, producing, directing, starring in the film Ted. The film won nine awards, was nominated for 19 others, and would gross $549.4 million against a budget of $50 million. Uh, Ted was Universal's highest grossing film of the year and the 12th highest grossing film of 2012. Speaking of movies, on February 24th, 2013, Seth hosted the 85th Academy Awards with William Shatner, helping him intro this jaunty little tune. We saw your boobs in the movie that we saw, we saw your boobs. Kristen Stewart, we saw your boobs in On the Road and in Monster, we saw Charlize Theron's. Helen Hunt, we saw them in the sessions. And Scarlett Johansson, we saw them on our phones. Jessica Chastain, we saw your boobs in Lawless. Jodie Foster in The Accused. Hillary Swank in Boys Don't Cry. Penelope Cruz in Vanilla Sky. And Kate Winslet in Heavenly Creatures and Jude. And Hamlet and Titanic. And Iris and Little Children. And The Reader. And whatever you're shooting right now, we saw your boobs. In addition to the naughties and niceties of the night, Seth was also nominated for Best Original Song for co-writing with Walter Murphy the theme song, Everybody Needs a Best Friend from Ted. Three days before the cancellation of Cleveland show, McFarland's second theatrical effort, A Million Ways to Die in the West, premiered on May 16, 2013. In addition to writing and directing, Seth would star along Academy Award winners and or nominees, Charlize Theron, Amanda Seyfried, Liam Neeson, Josh Brolin, and Jamie Foxx. 
in September that same year. So that's the second full-length studio album would drop. Holiday for Swing features performances from Nora Jones and Sarah Bareilles. It reached number 51 on the Billboard 200 and cracked the top 10 of the Billboard U.S. Top Holiday Albums at number 8. McFarlane would follow this with No One Ever Tells You, his third album on September 30th, 2015. It would reach number one on the Billboard Top Jazz Albums list and earn him a Grammy nomination for Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album. And in 2016, Seth McFarlane would make a... trek back to the small screen with a project inspired by his fandom in a little spec script called the orville uh so for the next episode we have divergence which was written by judith and garfield reeve stevens whose last work was season four episode 13 united which we discussed with former united states naval officer michael leblanc last week on episode 77 and was directed by David Barrett. Now, this is uh, David Barrett's first appearance in the franchise. Uh, so just quickly about him, he started his career on a project called Terror on Highway 91. That was in 1989. He was doing stunt work. Uh, his stunt work would continue with projects like Waterworld in 95, A Time to Kill in 96, Mars Attacks and Liar Liar in 97, and then... He was the bicycle messenger in Gross Point Blank, 1997. Then he would get a gig as production coordinator for Jennifer Lopez's music video, Waiting for Tonight, in 1999. His first directing was an episode of Pacific Blue, season five, episode 20, Kidnapped. And then his first producing effort was on a project called Peak Experience in 2003. And then he would go on to create, executive produce, and executive consult, and direct the pilot for The Mountain with Anson Mount, a.k.a. Captain Pike. Uh, And as I mentioned, this is his first franchise appearance. And then guest stars, we have returning Ada Maris as Captain Erica Hernandez, whose last appearance was season four, episode three, Home, which we discussed with actor-filmmaker Matt Jennings on episode 71. Then we have John Shuck as Antak. His first film was MASH in 1970 as Captain Painless Waldowski. And then he would go on to do 39 episodes of Macmillan and Wife from 1971 to 1977, 10 episodes of The New Odd Couple uh, from 1982 to 1983. And his first appearance in the franchise was Star Trek VI, The Voyage Home in 1986 as the Klingon ambassador Kamarog. Uh, then we have Mr. Eric Pierpoint as Section 31 Agent Harris. Uh, he's got an interesting career as well. His first credit was Windy City in 1984, which was written and directed by Armin Bernstein. Then he appeared in Invaders from Mars in 1986 as Sergeant Major Rinaldi, which we discussed on an episode of Cinema Shock, and I'll put the link to that episode. It was a fun discussion. Then he appeared uh, in the TV and film projects Alien Nation starting in 1989 as Detective George Francisco, co-starring T. 
Tim Russ, a.k.a. Lieutenant Tuvok from Star Trek Voyager. And he was in all 22 episodes of Alien Nation from 1989 to 1990, again, as Detective George Francisco. Then he appeared in Forever Young in 1992 with Mel Gibson and Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, which was written by J.J. Abrams, who also wrote and directed Star Trek in 2009. And then this, his first franchise appearance was actually an episode of next gen it was season seven episode two liaisons in 1993 he appeared as voval and then last but certainly not least we have mr james avery as general caval uh james avery was born november 27th 1945 in pewsville virginia uh, who served in the United States Navy in Vietnam from 1968 to 1969. He earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in drama and literature from Thurgood Marshall College in 1976. And then he wrote poetry and TV scripts for PBS, including the Emmy Award-winning production Amita Speaks, poet James Avery. So if you're keeping track, by the age of 31, he had served in Vietnam, got a degree uh, in 76 and then won an Emmy before he was 31. Oh man. And then, uh, his first, uh, appearance was in the blues brothers, 1980 as a man dancing outside Ray's shop. And then his first voiceover work was on new Scooby-Doo mysteries, season one, episode four mission undoable B team. And that was in, uh, 1984. He was the groundskeeper along with Renee Aubergeois a.k.a. Odo from Deep Space Nine. And then he did eight episodes of Super Friends. Uh, he appeared in the 1985 film Fletch. And then he was in a movie called Stooge Mania, uh, which was written and directed by Chuck Workman, alongside Armin Shimmerman, a.k.a. Quark from Deep Space Nine. And then he would go on to do nine episodes of L.A. Law from 1988 to 1992 as Judge Michael Conover. Uh, but as we mentioned, he did a lot of voice work. He did 23 episodes of Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, 65 episodes of Rambo, episodes of Chuck Norris Karate Commandos, Superman from 1988, The Karate Kid, Gargoyles, Wild Thornberries, and Biker Mice from Mars. He did three episodes of The Real Ghostbusters, 11 episodes of Aladdin, 18 episodes of Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys, 10 episodes in 1994 as Lieutenant Colonel James Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine in Iron Man. And he'd also reprise that role in 1996 and 2005. But if you recognize James Avery's voice, odds are it is from his appearance in 106 episodes of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1987 to 1993, playing the role of Shredder. Then he would go on to do 40 episodes of Sparks, 12 episodes of Nightmare Room, nine episodes of The Division, 11 episodes of The Closer. And this was his only appearance in the franchise, sadly, because he is awesome as the Klingon general. Uh, but from 1990 to 1996, James Avery would play the role for which most folks knew him best as Judge Philip Banks, a.k.a. Uncle Phil, in 147 episodes of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I've got a few questions for you. When you got this alleged confession from these two young men, did they have a lawyer present? No, because I'm their lawyer. Did you notify their parents? No, because we're their parents. 
So, officer, don't tell us to wait. And don't tell us to sit down. Just open that damn cell and let those two boys out of there. I'm going to tie this place up with so much litigation that your grandchildren are going to need lawyers. On New Year's Eve 2013, Avery died at Glendale Memorial Medical Center following complications from open heart surgery. He is survived by his wife, Barbara. He was 68. Uh, thank you, James Avery, for everything you've done in the fandom. Uh, we wish you well and Godspeed. Appreciate it, Uncle Phil. Uh, the episode uh, received a 1.7 out of 3% share. This means that it was seen by 1.7% of the population and 3% of all viewers watching television at the time of the broadcast. And this was less than the ratings received by the previous episode, Affliction, which scored a rating of 1.8 out of 3%. Uh, it finished behind programs on NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox, as well as What I Like About You and a repeat of Reba during the second half hour on the WB. Like we are seeing for all of Manny Cotto's efforts, this series in the Star Trek franchise is headed downhill fast. Uh, IGN gave the episode a four out of five though, and wrote enterprise continues its transform transformation in a watchable, entertaining television series. And more importantly, a good star Trek series. People are starting to come around and, uh, Jason Davis of Cinescape gave the episode a grade of B plus and praised the writers for taking the limitations of TOS and using it as the starting point for a solid story. Michelle, Erica green, we've, um, noted her many times. Uh, in her review for Trek Nation, she said she felt that some of the episode featured bad science, such as when Tucker was transferred between the two ships. All right. Dial it back, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, she also criticized Archer going down uh, to the Klingon base on his own, calling him a putz and said of the Klingon uh, attack, since when do Klingons destroy ships with deadly subroutines rather than, you know, bombs and that's a fair point <laughs> she thought the characterization uh, was forced and wanted a better resolution to the events in affliction uh, which she called one of the greatest hours of trek ever which that's high praise uh jamal of jammers reviews gave the episode a two uh two out of four saying that the battle scenes were painfully routine all right. Uh, this part, uh, this two-parter was ranked the fifth best story of Enterprise by Den of Geek writer James Hunt. So, Dwayne Ballinger, I'm going to ask you the question that we've been asking our guests uh, over the last uh, probably year or so. But are these two episodes of Star Trek Enterprise, Affliction and Divergence, are these episodes essential viewing? If someone is sitting down to watch Star Trek for the first time, are these ones they have to see, or can we skip to the next episode? They are excellent, but I feel they could be skipped by somebody that is just starting out. Uh, if I'm honest, like uh, I really haven't sought these two episodes out until I realized this, these are the ones that you and I would be speaking of. Right, right. <laughs> and as I was as I was looking through the um, the seasons. I was I have been watching them on Paramount Plus on my Amazon account, which oh, is how okay. I how I got it. Nice. And um, flipping through, finding it, I noted all the episodes that I had already watched. You know, that kind of showed you like it's got the little bar at the bottom. Yeah, it's got that little you blue bar that to you, indicate yeah, that, that you've watched, watched it. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yep, yep. 
you know, <laughs> I'll probably revisit that one again, you know, for that sure. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these, these, uh, as good as they are and on, on the rewatch, you know, you, you realize, oh yeah, these are actually excellent episodes, but no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're required. What do you think, man? Like, yeah, I, uh, you know, in looking at the overall narrative, I don't think that they are super important um, mm. for for the narrative as a whole. I think if you are looking at, I think if you are a fan of the Dr. Sung family, the augments and uh, Data's story moving mm-hmm. forward, I think this is kind of a nice gap filler, especially yeah. connecting enterprise to TOS, even if it's just aesthetically, um, knowing that, that, that story kind of starts more in TNG with data and hit, you know, if you look at it through the eyes of data, he doesn't discover his dad until, you know, some, you know, till the series is already well underway. And then it expands from there. Um, but, you know, connecting data story to the augments here in Enterprise uh, and then again, wrapping up some of the details with these two episodes, Affliction and Divergence, when you also couple that with Picard season two, which takes place in the distant future, but right. they actually go back in time to before Enterprise. It's kind of a nice progression from Picard season two to these episodes in enterprise and then dealing with the Klingons in TOS and then learning about data in TNG and then progressing to deep space nine, where we learn more about the Klingons looking different in the TNG era versus TOS and Worf is actually asked about it and he doesn't want to talk about it. And, and you think, I think there was a thought for a while of like, Oh, it's something embarrassing. It's something, uh, it's something that maybe has, you know, I think there was an implication that it may or may not have to do with their sexual history of some kind or some sort of. I do, rem- some I do kind- remember that that line was almost played like a joke. It yeah, was it was played, played in a joking manner. Humor, yeah. Right. But when you look at it with these episodes, with these two episodes specifically, especially involving Section 31 and mm-hmm. the augments. Now, you know, Worf didn't want to talk about that because it would tie his people to the augments, which yeah. Starfleet has a very firm stance against the augments. Thank yes. you, Khan Noonien Singh and Section 31. So seeing how that all kind of comes together, I think if you enjoy that particular arc, yes, then I think this ties together a couple of details. Um, but if you're looking at the franchise as a whole, yeah, you can maybe skip right. it yeah. for sure. I, it's, it depends on what you're watching for. True. If you're, if you're looking for the overall story, yeah, you might be able to skip this, but if you're getting into the minutia of it, if you're looking for something a little bit deeper, a little more streamlined, this might be a nice little chapter, especially since it works so well as a two-parter, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps juxtapose immediately after the three-parter guest appearances with Brett, with Brent Spiner and, you know, letting the rest of the series play out from there. But yeah, I, I think, I, so my answer is yes and no. <laughs> uh, and but yeah. Also you, you, you mentioned, we talk about section 31 and 
DS9 became kind of heavy on, on it. Yeah. Not in a bad way. I don't mean that in a bad way. Because right. I, I enjoyed Bashir and his, his whole confusion over you know what to do about all of that. And you uh-huh. kind of see that a little bit in Malcolm. But I, I wanted to ask you, maybe you know, is this the first historical instance, historical we see in the, the franchise of Section 31 being mentioned? or I believe if you are, if you're following the chronology along with us here on computer resume podcast, I believe this is the first blatant mention of section 31, unless you consider the time agents and the temporal cold war as, which is it's to me, it's kind of implied that the temporal agents are working with Starfleet within section 31 kind of sort of, so I've always considered uh, temporal agent Daniels uh, played by Matt Winston, son of mm-hmm. legendary uh, creator uh, Stan Winston. I've always considered him part of Section 31, although it's not specifically stated. OK, but in my mind, Section 31 also encompasses the, the temporal agents. So the temporal agents being from the distant, distant future. Right a version of section 31 that has stayed mostly under the radar. Cause again, if they're popping up here in enterprise and the next time we hear about them is deep space nine, right? Like they, they, they fly under the radar most of the time, actually technically the next we'll hear about them in the chronology is actually in discovery. So yeah. 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 And I, yeah. I think, I think some, I think what might be fun for me and guests uh, who will appear on the show later <laughs> in the run of this particular podcast might be uh, what might be fun to do is picking out certain people in TOS and TNG and be like, I think that person's with section 31. So uh, that might be a section uh, that might be a new segment we do uh, once we that's get to TOS. Cool. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I think so. I think that'll work. So uh, Dwayne, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know it's getting late. You've, you've stayed with up, you've stayed up with us long past your bedtime. Oh, I'm man, sure. I, loved it. I, I loved it, man. <laughs> this has been great. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, final thoughts on the episodes uh, the series, the franchise, your experience on this podcast. Love the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate that. Anytime, it's been a man. lot of fun. Done, if I've ever done anything like this, it's been so long that I don't remember it. So we'll say this is the first. <laughs> Thanks. And, uh, thank and you, man. You're, you are welcome that. back anytime. Anytime. Uh, just, just as a final thought on Star Trek for me personally is um, I've always thought of it as something that no matter what life has thrown at me or, you know, however you may be feeling, like none of it can take Star Trek from me. You know what I mean? Like, so so I may, you know, I might sit and draw or something and just have uh, the next generation is, they have a channel on, the name of that thing pluto tv i was about to where say it's I think just it's pluto, playing, yeah. <laughs> you know next generation shows all day yeah so i might keep it on that not even really watch it just it's even white, hearing it it's just white noise man yeah you're so familiar with the episode you you, you can see it in your mind pretty much you know of course. it's comforting of course it's oddly comforting so mm-hmm. yeah man trek is a, a is very important to me and it has been for a long time 
Yeah, I think uh, it's, you know, the people, the people who are getting upset about new Trek and we'll talk for a few minutes about new Trek. Cause I yeah. do want to get some more thoughts on uh, sure. how you feel about new Trek. Uh, but that'll be for the Patreon supporters. Um, but the f- people who are getting really upset about new Trek are forgetting like the old Trek didn't go away. Right. Yeah. You can still watch the old Trek. Yeah. It's yes. the, it's the same folks who complained about, well, they got this all female cast of ghostbusters. What? Well, that ruins ghostbusters. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The old films are still there. Yeah. You can go watch them if you want. <laughs> I've never understood that. They I've, I've heard so many times, quote unquote, they've ruined my child childhood. Yeah. Yeah. dude you're ruining your childhood you know you're letting this ruin your childhood yeah exactly it's like you, you know they didn't invent watch. a time machine and go back in time and like destroy that movie you know? right right yeah. oh man i feel the same way yeah it, it, you know i it's sort of a I, for a while i thought it was kind of a backhanded compliment but honestly i think it's actually the nicest compliment anybody can get about film television music things of that sort is that i watch it or i listen to it to go to sleep right. which which makes it sound like oh it just bores you to sleep no, like, no, no it's so comforting yes and i love it so much that i use it to lull me to sleep every night it is my bedtime yes. story it is my lullaby uh yeah and i to be i'll be honest and i think i've mentioned it once or twice on the show I leave it on. I leave TNG on for my dog. He loves the music and he loves Patrick Stewart's voice. That's great. Who, who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's uh, honest to God. Who doesn't like his voice? Exactly. Exactly. I wonder, there's got, there has to be this. Do you know how like there are apps that have like white noise to help you fall asleep? Yeah. It might be rain or whatever. I would, I would love if there was like the, the thrum of the Enterprise D's engines. We've got some stuff to talk about after the show. Okay. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, next week we will be joined by the lovely Ren Sims for the conclusion of Seth MacFarlane's miniseries with the Orville season one, episode one, old wounds, which is available on Hulu and Disney plus. Dwayne, what do you have that people can look up your work and follow what you've got going on in the world of art and pop culture? Um, There is a band called Ginky Ginky Panic. They are a horror surf band. And I have done some recent um, work for them. Uh, The most recent thing was a t-shirt design. And I think there's a tape on the way with this with the same art on it. Oh, and you can I, look them up, and and uh, they're fantastic, man. The, the those guys are great. Um, nice. Chris Morey is the guitar player and and one of the uh, singers for that, and they're just fantastic, great guys. Uh, actually, pay their artists, you know which is great. You know, that's wonderful. Right. It is very wonderful. Oh yeah. I'd see that as a kindness. Um, Yeah, yeah, man, that's, that's the latest and and the most fun thing going on right now. Do they have a website? I don't know. I know you can follow them on Instagram by searching that same name. I'm sure you could do a Google search because he's really got, um, he's cast a wide net and, I think the one of the latest things they had is some 
magazine that's distributed around the Atlanta area. That's like a music magazine. Okay. Yeah, I'll look them up and I'll, and, uh, I'll put I'll put their links and stuff in the in the show. Yeah, yeah, they're a lot of fun and they're in the sci-fi and you know horror and all that great stuff. And nice. it's fantastic. And where can people bother you directly on the internet? You can send me an email. Remember email? Remember oh yeah, that? I think I've heard of email. <laughs> but it's uh, it's this is a deep cut uh, geek geek thing from DC Comics. Yeah, Vandal Savage at gmail.com nice nice wonderful and i am at mr todd a davis on all of the socials from all of us at the computer resume podcast thank you so much for listening and i'll see you in 10 forward Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop. And our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn. And the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods. And we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?